everybody, Mike here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. So grateful you're tuning in with us. Thank you for those of you who like us, subscribe. Thank you to our incredible network of Patreon supporters. We've just formed such a great community together, and we're so grateful for your continued and ongoing support. The Eries have been on vacation the last couple of weeks. So we were in Newport Beach uh, last week, and we got to do a a podcast with our sweet Andy Bear. Um, We have been in Lake Tahoe. So today we're coming at you live from the Vox World headquarters in Lake Tahoe, Nevada. We have a friend who has been mentioned before on the podcast. We finally get to do a show together. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce you to Kevin number one. Kevin number one, say hello. Hello, Vox. Not to be confused with Kevin number two. Correct. Who's a darn good Kevin as far as the scale of Kevins go. I was extremely impressed at Kevin number two. Kevin number two is a good Kevin. I was. I'm not going to lie. I've met some doozies. But why? Oh, I bet. There's a lot of doozies. There's a whole Reddit thread dedicated to Kevins. Is it really? It's not flattering. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you had said Kevin was a good... Good name until the the movie Up came out. Yeah, Kevin. Was, Kevin was like an okay name, okay. but then in the movie Up, there is the extinct ostrich bird who is a female named Kevin. Yeah, and pretty much since then, Kevin's been the joke name on no. sitcoms. Movies. No, watch closely, pay attention. No, to what's going out on there? Okay, on the dark media. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, but we're we're pushing on. We yeah, got there's Mike, bigger issues out there. Mike isn't that great. Either. Mike's always been pretty solid. It's solid, but unimaginative. Kevin at least has a little flair to it. It's got more syllables at least. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we've been just playing like crazy, and Kevin is one of the first um, folks who really bought kind of the vision for the podcast and the community, and so we've just become great friends. Um, So I'm sorry if it's a little echoey. We're in his... In his master bedroom together, just the two of us. <laughs> Nothing awkward at all about that. Um, and uh, he brought up something. We, we've been talking a lot about the, the podcast. He brought up something earlier. Um, and uh, it was a phenomenal question that he got from a friend. And we thought, whoa, that's, that would make a great podcast. So uh, we're going to get to that in just a couple minutes. But I always want to give um, airtime to people who uh, are dis- disagree with some things that were some either the way something is said or the content of, of what is said or even the emphasis. And in this case, we just finished several episodes uh, about uh, reconciling faith and politics. And so not surprisingly, uh, there are a couple of thoughts out there that I thought, you know, these are worth uh, responding to. And, and again, because we're, we want to be a, a community that is safe to kind of talk about anything, um, I always think it's really fun to get uh, feedback from people who ask very good and sincere questions and have the opportunity to respond. And we'll, whether that is good or bad, we'll see. But Curtis, what were you going to say? I love the Q&As. When I listen... You like the Q&A? I look for, I mean, you like the Q&A episodes? I love the Q&A episodes. So I think those... Yeah. Oh, okay. So I... I, th- I lean away from those because I, th- I, I would think people would find them boring, but you well, like them. Yeah, but you're just wrong. Sorry, okay. sorry about that. <laughs> I think a lot of people like them. I, I have no, oh, that's good. I, I have no data on well, it. Well, there you go. Other than me. All right, Curtis. Um, Curtis begins with a nice affirmation, um, which is a great way to enter in. Um, he says, I, I did not vote. He was on fa- this was on Facebook, so this is a public comment. He said, I'm going to preface my comment with the, the fact that I did not vote for Trump or anyone on the left, though I generally vote on the conservative side with that said. My only criticism 
is your, Mike's, continual criticism of Christians who voted for Trump. I guess I don't mind it, as I get it, he has a ton of character flaws, and this is a slippery slope for the church, etc. But you only mention Hillary and the left like 1% to the 99 you mention the right. One could make a strong case that it would have been even more immoral to vote for Hillary or Bernie, and by your own arguments in this podcast, really as a Christian, should not have uh, you should not have in much the same way you argue against voting Trump. If, as you state, our identity is first in Christ and that it is not separate from our politics, then it would be unthinkable to vote for Hillary or Bernie, who of course support abortion at all stages, as well as their educational policies, which sell out to big unions and prevent school choice, which affects mostly the poor, thus continuing a cycle of inadequate education and poverty in low-income communities. One could also look uh, at the failure of socialist policies, how in fact Trump's economy has been better even for the poor, as more jobs have been taken and less people are on government assistance. Now, now and he goes on. He's got another, uh, another paragraph that raises some other things. But I thought this, this kernel of, of, of criticism that we're seemingly unrelenting against Christians who vote for Trump, I thought that was worth responding to. And, and that comment, Curtis, got seconded by Jason, uh, who, again, starts with an affirmation. These guys are very smart. Uh, always lead, always lead with the butter. If it weren't for affirmations before critiques, I'd never be affirmed. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. okay, I like this. Right? Yeah. He says uh, that said. That said, being the the uh, nice thing he said about me. That said, I have to agree with the overall sentiment Curtis has shared. I've watched, listened to your postings and podcasts with less and less interest. Boy, you're not the you're not alone in that, my friend. <laughs> I think there are a lot of people in the boat too, but with less and less interest is I've just grown tired of the imbalance I've seen. There is a far broader base to focus on beyond the Republicans, Trump conservatives in terms of the issues and criticisms and how the church should approach them. I have no problem with Trump criticism. He is flawed in numerous ways. However, the lack of balance is glaring in my opinion, or as he wrote, IMO in all caps. Uh, Was there an H in there? Oh, just I know. No, no, no H. No, not humble, in in my opinion. (laughs) Perhaps I've missed some podcasts where the left side of the political spectrum was criticized in a comparable way. It's fanatical support, almost cheering for abortion rights without restriction, as an example. What seems obvious to me is it's far easier to criticize the conservative positions in the world of social media than those of the left. It's almost lazy. Truth is criticizing the latter. Truth criticizing the latter takes more backbone, IMO, um, uh, as the ire is unmatched. Okay, so first of all, Curtis and Jason... We'll call you Kaysen for short. Um, we, I'm so grateful um, for your thoughtful critique. And if you were to look at the number of times Trump is mentioned or Republican politics are mentioned, uh, yes, it is vastly, vastly out, outnumbers the times Hillary has been mentioned or the Democrat, you know, political left, progressive side, however you want to mention. So, so guilty, no question, guilty is charged. And I understand, even as I got into the Paul and politics thing, I even understand, like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I hear you. We know Trump's flaw, blah, blah, blah. But, but I, I, would, I would say, if we were sitting in a room together, I would say, okay, I, I don't... And maybe I'm, I'm miscommunicating, but I don't think of myself as 
criticizing Republican stances or Democratic stances. And I don't think of myself as criticizing Christians who have voted for Trump or who have voted for Hillary. Rather, what I'm trying to criticize, and it's so narrow and nuanced, is the baptism of any kind of politics by the church as if the kingdom of God could somehow um, be wed to the kingdoms of this world and the way they are supposed to run. In other words, listen, I don't care who you voted for. I know great Jesus-loving people who voted for Trump. I know great Jesus-loving people who voted for Hillary. I know great Jesus-loving people who didn't vote at all in protest. Right? My, my job is not to make those judgments. I don't know the inner motives of anybody, nor is my job to sit. I have opinions, of course, but in a platform like this, I'm not just going to sit and take shots at Republicans and Democrats. That just plays into the bifurcation and the binaries that are already existing, and who wants that? The thing I'm trying to do, and evidently I'm not doing well enough, is to go after when some Christians anoint a party or a platform or a personality as the Christian platform personality or, you know, whatever my other P was. When the, when Christians anoint that party platform or personality, there it is, uh, I, I have issues with it. And it doesn't matter if it were Republican or Democrat. Listen, the reason we don't talk a lot about Hillary is she's not in power. And she wasn't baptized by some of the people in my tribe as this is God's candidate. See, when people people out there are very much convinced that to follow Jesus means you are conservative in your politics. Personally, I, I think that is a tragedy because, not because I disagree with conservative politics, but because the gospel is political in an, in an entirely different way than is captured by Republican or Democratic policies. It's so much bigger and broader and more compelling than simple uh, progressive or conservative agendas. And so for me, I, I understand there's an imbalance, no question about it. But if Hillary were anointed God's candidate by, by the left, I'd be critical of them too. It's just we're in a case right now where there is so much fervor from the evangelical camp, 77% approval ratings, where, where people are being turned away from Jesus because of the perception. Now, how much reality is behind it, you know, is up for discussion, but because of the perception that evangelicals, as long as they get their political way, are willing to sell themselves out. And so what I'm trying to be critical of is not Christians who vote for Trump. I want to be critical of Christians who engage in politics in the way the world does. That does nobody any good. And in, instead of introducing a third way of being political, the way that we've talked about for weeks and weeks about how Paul sees us as an alternative polis, uh, instead of doing that, most of us just fall into the same binary. So yeah, we can get into whose immigration policy is better. I'll have an opinion. You'll have an opinion. Great. But as citizens of the kingdom, there's something far more important um, that we're about that transcends either the left or the right. So my, my initial response would simply be, I really don't mean uh, to come across as being critical of, of Christians or, uh, who voted for Trump. No, no, no. It's just the arguments that we're using to baptize 
our approval of Trump, uh, and, they, and they'd be different for our approval of Hillary. But either way, anytime you're baptizing a candidate or political system or personality uh, and saying that this is God's thing, I mean, of course we have to rise up and speak against that. Because the last thing I want people to think is that following Jesus means you're a Republican. Because if you happen to disagree with Republican politics or personalities, guess what? You're not going to follow Jesus. And what a freaking tragedy that would turn out to be. That we've so wedded conservative politics with evangelical Christianity. That's my concern. And because it's being on display by people like Franklin Graham and Robert Jeffers, who don't speak for me, but they're not, I don't get quoted in the media, right? It's these extreme people, but that's the narrative. And so there have to be counter voices. That's, that's simply, so I, you, well, yeah, Kevin, like, chime in. No, the, the counter narrative I think is really important. And part of the counter narrative is the fact that Jason and Curtis had really well articulated, you know, frustrations that they, they're able to right. engage in a dialogue publicly on the wonderful machine called Facebook. And <laughs> it, but there's a lot of non-Christians out there, people outside the, the you know, air quote here, Christian fold, that are very confused about why Christians uh, would support someone like Trump. Right. And I think what, you, you're, you're, what you're cultivating, what you and Andy were really, um, really strong in championing was that we just want to have this conversation that does create that counter-narrative. Mm-hmm. And what you on, on Vox are doing, I think, is valuable. I think what uh, you know, Curtis and Jason are doing is valuable in that it is a conversation about Christians, right. how we wield power uh, over right. people. With Absolutely. Power. That's it. So when Obama was in office, I hardly said anything. Because the evangelicals were criticizing him like crazy. Everything he did, he was getting criticized. I didn't need to say a word, right? But when when the perception is 77% favorability rating from the evangelical camp to Trump, there have to be other voices that say, well, I don't think he's God's candidate. And I know you're not saying he is. And I know you didn't vote for him in that way. I get that. But the perception is that that's what's happening. And so, again, I've said this before, and I deeply mean it. It doesn't matter to me um, whether or not you voted for Hillary or Trump or didn't vote at all. The thing that the thing that sticks out, though, is when you say, I can't imagine as a Christian how you could vote for Hillary because of the abortion issue. So I got another email from my friend Mike, who um, who who comes from the place of saying, I actually can't believe um I'm saddened the American Christian Church supports Donald Trump at a 71% approval rating. Christians should be the ones sounding the alarm of the depravity of the policies he is pursuing. If a Christian is okay with how Donald Trump treats refugees, then I have no idea uh, which Bible they're reading. Refugees are trying to escape domestic violence, gang warfare, oppressive governments. Uh, they're, they're being accepted in record low numbers in the United States. The church should be up in arms that this country is no longer a safe place to turn, but instead they're supporting Donald Trump with that high approval rating. Um, and, and, has, and horrifically, the non-acceptance of asylum seekers is only the tip of the iceberg. His image-bearing refugees which have made it to the border are having their kids forcibly separated from them. Donald Trump's administration has deported hundreds of parents without their children being returned. Thousands of kids uh, still haven't been returned. Every child who doesn't get reunited with their family has been kidnapped by the order of Donald Trump. Now, so here's somebody who's making the opposite point. Yep. <laughs> so and this is what I'm trying to get out of. I'm trying to get out of this exact way of looking at it. 
Some Christians will say, I cannot imagine a Christian not voting for Donald Trump because of his conservative judiciary um, appointments, uh, because he is pro-life. Um, not, we don't, you know, Robert Jeffer, Jeffers even said this. We don't like the person. We like the policies. Okay. And then you have uh, Mike who uh, emails in and says, I can't, I can't imagine how Christians could support an immigration policy that's this horrific if we're all in agreement uh, that image, the refugees are image bearers. So, so here you have someone saying, well, the abortion issue trumps all other issues. Here you have someone saying, well, no, no, the refugee issue is just, if you're pro-life, how can you be anti-refugee? And now we have two Christians engaging in political discourse, which, hallelujah, we have the privilege to do in the American democratic system. I love it. Where I start drawing the line, though, is this. I can't, the, the phrase or the thought, I can't believe another Christian would X. The judgment or the if-then statements, well, if you don't address the immigration issue, you're really not a Christian. Or if you don't address the abortion issue, you're really not a Christian. That, that means we've been discipled by our political parties more than we have by our scriptures. It's just that simple. It is okay to, at the same table, have Simon... Um, the zealot who, who, and who knows how zealot this guy was, but because he had that nickname, that's a pretty good indicator. Yes. The the zealots weren't an official party at that point, but within, within years uh, of, of, of Jesus's life, I mean, the, the zealots will start murdering tax collectors and they will provoke Rome into war in AD 66, about 30 years after uh, the time of Jesus. So you've got Simon the Zealot sitting with Matthew the tax collector. You could not have a more passionate, extreme continuum between these two people. Because what was at stake is the future of Israel and the world. This was a political, this was a political debate. This was like, how, how is God allowing his chosen people to be subjected by the Romans? And the tax collector saying, well, I don't know, but I gotta make a living, so I'm gonna collect taxes. And the zealot's saying, dude, are you kidding me? We, we have to take matters into our own hands. I mean, this, the taxation system is the problem. It's idolatry. It's an offense against God. And as long as we pay taxes, God will not rescue us from his people. We're compromising. That's you, the chicken. What? They're, they're all sitting together, right? And they're all sitting together. Pass the chicken. Okay, got it. Uh, and they're all sitting. Of course they're eating chicken. And they're all sitting together at the same table surrounded by Jesus. Now, and maybe they had these kinds of discussions, but somehow Jesus trumped, <laughs> Jesus trumped their political differences. That's what I see lacking in this discourse. Well, how could you be a Christian and vote for someone who supports abortion? How could you be a Christian and support someone who separates kids from their families? The point is, Feel free to absolutely disagree. Of course we're going to disagree over the most effective ways to run the kingdom of the world. And hallelujah that we live in a society that gives us the freedom to voice our opinions. I'm simply saying that we have cemented ourselves into those identities harder than we've cemented ourselves into our our identities as sitting at the table with Jesus around people who aren't like us. It's just that simple. That at the end of the day, feel free to disagree over immigration and abortion. But what we don't do is begin to question each other's commitment to Christ, right? Jesus sorts all of that out. And so so we are political in different ways. Our politics 
Of course, we have opinions about immigration and so on. But our politics is deeper. Our politics is about a new humanity. Our politics is about um, reordering the social order uh, of the world and and reversing what the world thinks is valuable. And of course, we'll disagree about how best to do it along the way. That's fine. But our fundamental identities, we come at those disagreements as brothers and sisters, not as Republicans and Democrats. And that's the point. That's the point. Any thoughts, Kat? It's just so in our face. I mean, I get why we keep on getting distracted with missing that the, the, the overarching point of it. We're here about a narrative with Jesus, not about Trump or Hillary. Right. Um, it is hard to go through your day and yes. not get distracted with, oh, this is just about Trump or Hillary. Yeah, totally and so true. I think you know, totally this, you know, the work that you're doing uh, and these conversations on Facebook, as much as it can remind us, let's get back to the point. The work know? that we're doing, my friend. The work that we're doing. So so on one hand, um, your, your criticism, uh, uh, Jason and Curtis, is absolutely accurate. That, that it is it is weighted, but I, I don't. If I'm misrepresenting, I have no interest in that because, like I said, um, uh, I know plenty of people who voted for Trump and plenty of people who voted for Hillary, and giddy up. So let me know what you think of that response because uh, I'm grateful for your feedback, and you know, never want to have the final word. Uh, we want to move on though to a conversation that that Kevin Number One had with a mutual friend of ours. Yep. And um, one of the one, one of the phrases um, or combination of words that we use around the, uh, the uh, podcast world is this phrase deconstruction and the phrase reconstruction. They're not phrases; they're words. Um, but we talk a lot about the phrase deconstruction and reconstruction. And deconstruction is the idea that at some point in your life, if you remember the stages of spiritual maturity a podcast like episode in the forties or fifties was like really maybe eighties, maybe seventies. I don't know. But it was an earlier one. It was 44. Not. I I just wanted to sound really knowledgeable. I I was like, dude, Um, it was, it was, I think it's in the eighties. I think it's 87 or something, but um, we talked about how uh, there are stages in spiritual development and um, we even talked about how the Psalms can be understood as a movement from orientation to disorientation to reorientation in the life of faith. So there's this, this almost universal acceptance that people go through various stages in the development of their faith. One of those stages, uh, we can, you can call disorientation, you can call the dark night of the soul. Lots of people today call it deconstruction, which is, oh my goodness, the faith that I was handed isn't, isn't working and, and or it's running up against things that are I'm finding to be true of the world that that don't fit in my previous understandings of the scriptures. And so lots of people are sitting in a, in a very uh, disorienting place. Uh, so for some, it's sad. For some, it's liberating. For some, it's confusing. For some, it's all the above. So deconstruction is... Um, what a lot of people go through when um, the, the, the kind of the packaged faith they received as a kid, a teenager, a young adult, whatever it was that brought them into the kingdom now, now needs to expand to meet what's happening in the world or in your life. And, um, or 
Um, it gets exposed by the ugliness of, of politics. Or, I mean, it can happen any number of ways. Like, oh, I, I always thought this biblical story was true, and here's this author saying it's not true at all. And what does that mean for my understanding of the Bible? So, so it's a huge deal uh, to us to create permission for these kinds of questions and conversations. But we never want to end there because... There's always stage four. Um, there's always reconstruction. There's always reorientation. And um, and so we spend, Kevin and I and, and others spend a lot of time talking about this uh, because there seem to be loads of people in deconstruction and loads of podcasts and books helping deconstruct. But we're, we're wondering what reconstruction looks like and feels like. And so, Kevin, kind of fill us in about the conversation you were having with Tim. Yeah. And, the and about, Tim introduced us. Did you know that? No. Yeah. He, Tim did? Yeah, because he sent me your podcast uh, on oh, that's uh, right. God okay. Walk Through Twice. Yeah. Oh. Great, great. Thank great you, Tim. Sermon. Yeah. Love you, Tim. So, so, you know, what Tim and I talk about, you know, we were drinking bourbon, which is a, a form of Coors Light with more concentration. <laughs> I'm trying to pick up for, for Andy here. Um, we, 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 we've been on our deconstruction path for a long time, and we found that deconstruction is really easy. You know, it's really easy to tear things down, but how do we put things back together? And, and Tim's wife, you know, Shauna, she asked me, you know, we were hanging out as a group last year. She said, yeah, I get it, but I've been reading the Bible all wrong, but how do I read it right? Mm. You know, this real struggle with the hard part, which is how do we put it all back together? Yeah. What is my, as I live out my faith, what does that look like? Um, what are the norms? What are the patterns? How do I read the Bible when I haven't been to seminary and know all these really cool backstories? Yeah. And so yeah. T- Tim basically asked a very efficient question. He said, what if our reconstruction is just developing a new type of orthodoxy? Right. At the end of the day, we just have kind of redefined a new, uh, a new pattern or a new formula of thought that Christians have to do and think like. And we're, we think we're really progressive in this deconstruction, reconstruction thing. But we're just going to end up with some new orthodoxy, and our kids are going to have to do this all over again. Oh, such a great question! So, um, like one of the ways I came to faith was through apologetics. So I would read guys like Josh McDowell. Exactly. No, apologetics comes from this Greek word that means to defend or to make a rational defense of. Good try. (laughs) Um, And and uh, I used to love this stuff. I went to graduate school in philosophy. I mean, I love. Um, the, the, the science, the empirical data, the history, the, I mean, it's fascinating to me. I used to just immerse myself in hear the prophecies and hear the arguments for the resurrection. And I, and I find that all really good, fascinating and interesting, but at some point that wasn't enough. And I also realized some of the things that I'd been told weren't, weren't exactly true. Um, and had been repudiated by much better scholars, and, um, and so what do you do in that moment? And so Tim's concern, uh, like I remember getting the four spiritual laws, all right? Now, this was something a group called Campus Crusade for Christ used uh, to explain the message of Jesus. And the first law, so just as there are physical laws, there are four spiritual laws. And the first law was God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, I'm sure his plan is wonderful, but it turns out that his definition of wonderful and my definition of wonderful are two totally different definitions. And so what, what began as, oh yeah, God, I'm going to do great things and God's going to use me and this is going to be awesome, turned into, holy cow, life 
sucks and it's so hard. And God, where are you? Why aren't you more obvious in this stuff? How come you're not speaking? I mean, what the heck? This doesn't feel wonderful at all. So what what sustained me and brought me into the kingdom was soon deconstructed. Well, I, I, I would never tell, I would never look anybody in the eye and tell them, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Because I know exactly how they would read wonderful. And that's not what we mean. So I just, I, I've deconstructed that and said, no, I have another way I would talk about it. So Tim's, Tim's concern is, well, okay, so let's go, let's all go through deconstruction together. But then what if we just come up with other spiritual laws? I mean, are we playing the same game over and over and over again? We're just changing the language or changing the concepts, which I thought was a phenomenal Phenomenal question. So that's what Tim does. That's what Tim does. Bless you, Tim. We'll give you a finder's fee, a friendship finder's fee. A Vox t-shirt. We have them. I have, I have, I have a couple. Uh, they might be a little big. I'm just going <laughs> to gonna throw that out there. But my, so, so let's go back. Let's, let's try to answer that question or at least begin an answer. Cause I don't, I don't know that you can, um, by asking, what does it mean to rebuild your faith? So your faith comes crashing down. You get a diagnosis of something, a relationship splits. You're ashamed at the the way you perceive evangelical politics. Um, You you find a podcast or a scholar that says, hey, guys, we really didn't like conquer the promised land. And um, some some parts of the Bible are just absolutely not true in the factual sense. Um, or, Or perhaps something existential is just hit and you're wrestling with depression and anxiety and God seems so far away. I mean, this could happen any number of ways. How do you rebuild faith? And so, so one thought, and this is where, this is where I'd love for you guys um, to chime in. I'd really love your thoughts on this because, because I think, I think this is a super important question. The best analogy I could come up with off the top of my head when Kevin and I were talking about this was, well, how do you rebuild a marriage? So you, you were married to each other. You fell in love, the infatuation stage. You loved everything about each other. It was, it was amazing. I mean, you talked for hours. It was the romantic sparks were just, I mean, the, you, you, you always knew. You always knew where the other person was, and they were never far from your thoughts. And the, the, the mushy emails you would write to each other and the poetry you would exchange. And then you get married. And, and that lasts for a while. And then it starts evolving with, with kids, perhaps, or mortgages, or both of you working, or whatever it is. And then you realize, oh, my goodness, some of the things I really liked about him or her when we got married are actually things that are now driving me crazy. And, oh, opposites do attract. And, oh, this person has family of origin issues. And, oh, they're playing into my family of origin issues. And, oh, by year seven, year 10, year 12, you're going well, this isn't nearly what I thought it was going to be. And you become disillusioned. And in that disillusionment, it is, of course, super easy to try to find a validation elsewhere. And so let's say a marriage has become broken by infidelity. How do you rebuild a marriage? And I wonder if answering that question, we don't get a bit of insight into how do you rebuild faith? Because if someone were sitting in my office and saying, listen, um, there's been an affair. It was a sustained affair. It was, you know, the person was caught. They didn't come forward. I mean, just make it the worst possible scenario. How do you rebuild a marriage? And I'm no marriage counselor. I'm just a married dude who 
you know, lives through all of this stuff too. But one of the things that seems to be true in rebuilding a marriage is it takes a long time and it, um, it, it, it has to, it begins with almost the rebuilding of relational trust. Like it's not, it's not doing a set of practices for their own sake. So if I just said, Hey, Hey, uh, broken married people, um, just go on a date night every week. Um, uh, write nice notes to each other. Make sure you do big time celebrations for their anniversary and, and, um, and do a good job listening. Could you do all of that and not rebuild a marriage? Of course. Absolutely. You could do all that and not rebuild a marriage. And, and so, so instantly you would say, well, there's something deeper than just what it is you're going to be doing now. Correct? Correct. Is it making sense? Yep, I'm, I'm tracking. Because <laughs> uh, how, how do you teach someone to fall in love again? How do you, how do you teach someone to trust again? Right? I mean, these are such big, like, I mean, there's, there's a forgiveness aspect. There's a restitution aspect. There's a reconciliation aspect. There's a, I have to believe you're good and trustworthy again aspect. Right. And those practices. So let's say it's a date night or let's say it's marriage retreats or counseling. Those practices help, but all they do at their best is create environments where the real relational work has to take place. Correct. Yes. Okay. And well, I think what you're describing is that the, the reconstruction is probably going to look like a pattern of practice more so than a bunch of, uh, activities to perform or questions to have really good answers to. Yeah, it it seems exactly. It seems like the way you wouldn't rebuild a marriage is uh, first, you wouldn't say, okay, now just list facts about each other um, and (laughs) trust those and believe them. Yes, exactly. Um, Or you wouldn't say, hey, here's just a list of things to do. What What you would be aiming for is kind of the slow reorientation away from the hurt, the anger, the betrayal, the whatever, into being open now to trusting the person again, to moving towards beginning to trust the person again, to moving to, no, I trust the person again, to, okay, I'm open now to being in love with them again, right? I mean, this is a slow compass change, right? That, that how, do you, how do you even measure? You can't. All, all you can measure is just the heading. Is, it, is the trajectory of it towards each other or away from each other? right? And and there would be markers, I would assume, along the way that would give you an indication of whether or not you're traveling toward the other or away from the other. What were you going to say? I just interrupted you. Uh, You reminded me of that great philosopher, Lightning McQueen, where his focus was, (laughs) it's not about the destination, it's the journey. Come on, baby! So what what you're describing is a lifelong pattern of discovery, building, as opposed to the, what is it, the old Giesler and Nixer to every man and answer, by right. answer man, all this stuff. Right. We were trying to find that right answer. Right. Uh, that doesn't work in marriage. If I just knew more. Yeah. yeah. Correct. If I, if I could just counter that argument. Yes. And win, and then people would put me on their shoulders. Yeah. You know, that just, we're, we're past that. Right. But this continual practice of how do we continue to go deeper, uh, whether it's the marriage analogy or right. in our faith. That's it. Um, it it's it's going to be, I, I worry because it's going to be somewhat 
undefined. But that's that's exactly what it needs to be. I know. Or else we fall prey to what Tim has done. Yeah. Or, or what Tim was worried about. Yeah, Tim didn't do this. Yeah. Tim didn't do it. Well, it's maybe yes. We don't know. Well, should we call him? <laughs> <laughs> so, so exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. If you define it and you make it a formula, see, for, for many of us, what had to be deconstructed was a formulatic approach to the Bible, right? To faith, to salvation, to Jesus. It's just a very simple, rational Greek way of approaching this thing. And if you're, if you give money, God will take care of you. And if you're pure before marriage, your sex life would be awesome. And, and I mean, it's just, it was all a bunch of if then statements, right? If you do this, God does this. I mean, that's just the way it works yet. And we ignore all the obvious counterexamples in the Bible that were put there precisely to avoid that kind of reasoning. So what we've realized is that most of our, quote, faith has not been faith at all. It's been actually designed to be risk management. I don't actually want to trust God. I actually want to trust uh, a way to manage God or a way to get what I want. And this has always been the impulse of human beings in their religiousness, right? We, we got to placate the gods. We've got to earn their favor. We've got to trust in our merits. I mean, however that plays out. And so what you've done, what we've done is you've taken a mystery uh, and, and we've made it into 30 second sound bites. Um, hey, three easy steps to know God's will, five steps to, to have a great thriving marriage, four easy principles for having a relationship with God. And, and God's just going, man, how, how do you freaking describe, I mean, there aren't principles, there's no steps. I mean, there's, it's this thing. Like, how do you, what, four easy steps to falling in love? I mean, how do you, doesn't that seem a bit reductionistic? So, so if you're going to rebuild, go. It does after the first step where you realize it's not really working. Right, and exactly. That's why, that's why people are so frustrated. I did the four steps. I prayed the prayer of Jabez, whatever, and it just <laughs> fell flat on earth. Afterward, you, you still don't have it. That's right. Yeah, if you can do a list. Exactly. You want something at the end. Yes. But it, yes. And again, there's a place for all of that teaching. I'm not bagging on that teaching. My point is simply, I want to I wanna explore if I were coaching someone on how to rebuild a marriage, what I wouldn't be doing is encouraging them to intellectualize everything, nor would I encourage them just to fill their calendars with activity, right? There's a deeper work that has to be done there that involves a healing and forgiving and reconciling and trusting. And, and, and similarly, when you get to the idea of reconstruction, um, if it's going to be reconstruction on something way more solid than some of the Christianity we've been handed, then that same deep sort of inner work has to happen. Yes, there's stuff to do in it. Of course, there's stuff to do. But the stuff to do only is exposing you to the possibility of reorienting yourself in the meantime. I mean, the idea that you would have to forgive God, uh, the idea that you would have to become, you know, to, to sit with your darkness and not be able to fix it and stand before God saying, I can't fix this. Like there's nothing there. I'm not bringing a table to this or not bringing anything to the table for this. Right. I mean, it's, it's this deep, like really hard. And, and, and I think for a lot of people, the, the reconstruction advice of, okay, just read your Bible more, pray more, get into a church. Sure. I mean, okay. But unless there's, uh, unless that is accompanied by the deeper work, all that stuff is just going to make it harder. So to answer Tim's question, if Tim were sitting here and would say, hey, how, how do we know 
that our reconstruction isn't just something that has to be deconstructed down the road. My first answer would be we don't because yep. um, I'm sure there are blind spots we have that our children will have to have to fill in. So, OK, maybe that is the job of each new generation. But but secondly, I think there are ways or things we can do um, and or, or things that we can encourage, maybe is a better way to say it, that that would help people from falling into that trap again. So so we don't offer them formulas. We don't offer them cliches. We you know, we offer them things like presence. Um, we we allow people to be comfortable with mystery. We allow people to sit in tension. We encourage people to grieve and lament like those are things that help people in deconstruction. Right. The God isn't thinking you're in sin because you now have. Have all of these questions. God isn't angry with you. God's not withdrawn from you because you have all of these doubts or insecurities or whatever it is. But in fact, this is a process that if you follow it long enough, you'll find a deeper kind of faith, a deeper kind of relationship. I mean, I have friends, I have personal friends who survived an affair and who will say um, that the aftermath of the affair was the thing that made their marriage uh, the best thing they could have imagined. Like the marriage they had before the affair was one kind of marriage. The marriage they had after is a better kind of marriage. Now, they're not saying, of course, hey, I recommend you go have an affair and that will improve your marriage. No, but what the affair did was it forced them to do all this ex excavating as they rebuilt a relationship with each other. That same, I think that same analogy, it works well if what we say we have with Jesus is some sort of relationship, some sort of covenant, that we're now part of a part of a community and we now sit with the ability to have the Holy Spirit in us, to relate to Jesus regularly, um, to hear from him, to speak to him, I mean, all that stuff. So we've gotten fed up with the cliches, the Christian subculture, the, the marketing uh, and the, the, the overtaking of consumerism um, in, in the arenas of faith and hallelujah, all that stuff needs to go. Absolutely. It is hard. It's tough in the middle of it. But there is, I think, something waiting for us on the other side that will be worth it. I've just been around people who can say, well, you know what? If, if Adam and Eve aren't real people, I don't care. <laughs> I, I really don't care. Like my faith rests on Jesus. I mean, that he's the thing. The Bible isn't the thing. The Bible's the thing only insofar as it points me to Christ. Right. My faith isn't on whether the Bible is perfect. Uh, or whether it's complete or whether it's inerrant. My faith is in uh, this Jesus who we get glimpses of and the way Jesus is portrayed for me in it, all of its messiness and all of the weirdness and all of the, you know, there are some glaring sort of inconsistencies that actually for me gives me way more confidence in this um, than it, than it decreases my confidence in it. Because if, if all four accounts agreed perfectly, you'd go, well, of course they just copied. Uh, they just colluded. But the fact that the early church said, hey, it's okay if John and Peter are arguing about who got to the tomb first. And it's okay, right, that Peter looks like an idiot in some of this stuff. And it's okay that the women saw Jesus first, even though we'll edit that out later in our official creeds. Like, we'll keep it in there because that's what happened. So for me, that analogy of saying, how do I rebuild trust with a person is far more fitting uh, then, then to simply say, well, what you need is better theology or answers to your questions. And that will help. Of course, it will help. Um, as will, you know, praying more and reading your Bible, whatever. But that's not enough. 
there's a deeper work needed. All right, what do you think about this? I, I think we I think humans have a great skill of always getting back to some sort of formula mm-hmm. and having a system of beliefs that can be more easily answered. That will inevitably happen over time because we are humans. Yep. But the uh, the shared awareness of uh, of the body people going through this deconstruction, reconstruction, like we, we have an opportunity to hold each other accountable that we're not trying to get back to a different set of beliefs in which we believe in. Right. But we're, uh, we're walking on this journey together. Right. Uh, we're trying to figure out the differences between disciplines and, and rules. Right. We're going to, if we're, if we're, if we're trying to get out of the tension, Right. We're going to go back to a formula. Right. But if we come to a place where we as a community can walk in tension with each other, right. with all these things, I think we'll, it'll sustain a little longer. Okay, so, there, <laughs> so that brings up a great point. So there'll be indicators of a healthy faith, uh, like they're indicators of a healthy marriage, right? So you can't say, well, if you have a date night every week, you have a healthy marriage, or if you don't, you don't have a healthy marriage. Right? There are better indicators of that. How you talk to each other when you're angry. Yeah. Um, the language you use uh, towards each other when the other's not around. I mean, those sorts of things. Way better indicators. So, so the question would be then, what are good indicators of a faith that is being reconstructed that won't fall, as far as we can tell, that won't fall prey to some of the stage two stuff that we fell in love with? And you're saying one of those indicators is the fact that you still feel tension. And so that tension can be with other people and their beliefs, of course. The tension could be the inner tension of you, of you going, man, I don't get this. I don't understand it. I have no clue how to handle this. And yet, and yet it seems part of the package. Yeah. Or, or that tension can exist um, in, uh, in, in sharing um, fellowship with believers who haven't gone through deconstruction yet. You know, and who just want to pat you on the back and give you a, a cliche from Romans eight twenty eight and say it's, it's going to be fine. God's going to God's going to make this beautiful. And though that may be true, not super helpful. But I love so tension would be one of those. I love that. Another one I would throw out would be um, how big is your table? Like how many different kinds of people are welcome at your table? Yeah, that would be a big one. That's a hard one. That's a very hard. We're going one. to the next one. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, would you, can you have a Trump uh, loving Christian and a Trump hating Christian? Yeah. You know, around your table, yeah. can you can you um, sit with somebody who doesn't believe? Can you sit with someone who believes uh, passionately in a different religion or who practices a different sexual orientation or whatever it is? Right? How big's your table? Yeah, that would be a big question. Yeah, there's there's a, a brilliant South Park where <laughs> they they uh, one of the characters want to become a nonconformist. Nice. And so he you know, dressed up in the black trench coat, dyed his hair black, and and then he was smoking clothes. And, uh, <laughs> and he didn't want to smoke clothes. And the other nonconformist said, hey, in order to be a nonconformist, you have to smoke clothes. Come on. And so the picture, I mean, those guys yeah. are just genius. How totally. to point this stuff out. But, you know, the, the, it's easy for us in the church that as we have more micro communities, whether it's a church yeah. or just a group of friends, we tend to dress like each other, yeah. you know, watch the same sports or, right. you know, uh, uh, bands, movies, whatever. Um, but as we have a bigger table with more diversity, it keeps us out of that non-conformist clothes conundrum yes where yes. We're, we are by prioritizing that that larger table with a larger mm-hmm. diversity even mm-hmm. when it's sometimes uncomfortable mm-hmm. we're ensuring we're not getting into that where we all tend towards the mean and end up looking like the That's same right. denomination right. church right so we'd say hey 
steps or, or progress in reconstruction were like, like, okay, I'm comfortable sitting in tension. I'm increasingly comfortable with some mystery. Yep. Um, that my table's getting bigger. Yeah. That would be a good thing. Yeah. No, I think that's really good. Would you add anything else? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> that's Perfect. everything someone needs to know to reconstruct. Yes. Write it down, put it in the list. <laughs> May three, two easy steps. Enlarge your table. Well, if some and live in tension, I think we'll sell more books if it's like eight steps. Oh, perfect. Yeah, it's got to be longer book. Yeah, so I, you know, I'd be interested, Vox community folks, I'd be interested in what you think. Um, how do we try to avoid uh, the landmines? Now, again, there's a certain arrogance to it that I'm sure will be exposed by later generations who'll be like, "Man, you guys are idiots." Um, but but let's pretend. Okay, that's granted. But let's still pretend we're trying to help people along the road. Um, how do we do that in ways that just don't substitute another very simplistic, non um, or, or reductionist, non-mysterious sort of system uh, for the, the real genuine faith in and with Jesus? And uh, I think that's a really good question. So we'll leave it there, my brothers and sisters. Um, I'd love, I'd love your thoughts. Kevin, any last words? I want to hear what Kevin number two thinks. It could be awesome. Kevin number two, you are on deck, my friend. Prepare yourself. Kevin number one has just called you out. Now, in a good way. Now, um, what, what I would love to do, again, is if you're willing to give us feedback, I always want to always read it. Um, thank you to the many of you who've, who've offered to help with audio uh, issues. <laughs> I really, and I gotta say, what Mike, you have been working your tail off, learning. I mean, you're digging in, you're watching videos, you're messing around with whatever software this is. Yeah, I uh, the Vox community, if they could see what I saw over the last oh couple my hours, goodness. they would be well bawling with appreciation. Well, let me tell you right now, thank you, Andy Bear. Yes. as it turns out, was a genius and is a genius. Yes. That just was, and set me on the right path, and so. We're trying to get this <laughs> to a, a much better level, but I, I'm grateful for all of you who just chimed in and said, hey, I'd love yeah. to help because it was awful. Um, so we're, we're not going to do awful again. Uh, but until next time, my brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give you peace. Until next time, friends, thank you so much for tuning in.